0: My guests today are Elizabeth Bartholet and Rachel Coleman. Elizabeth Bartholet is a professor of law at Harvard Law School and the faculty director of Harvard's Child Advocacy Program. She teaches civil rights and family law, specializing in child welfare, adoption, and reproductive technology. Professor Bartholet is the author of two books and many articles, including a recent publication in the Arizona Law Review entitled, Homeschooling, Parent Rights Absolutism Versus Child Rights to Education and Protection. And Rachel Coleman is the co-founder and executive director at the Coalition for Responsible Home Education. She holds a PhD in history, and her dissertation focused on shifting evangelical ideas about the roles of children, childhood, and education over the course of the 20th century. Rachel grew up homeschooled from kindergarten through high school in Indiana, where her parents were on the board of a regional homeschool organization. Elizabeth, Rachel, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Blake. So this is being recorded in response to primarily to an article that was published about you, Elizabeth, called The Risks of Homeschooling, which was in the May-June 2020 edition of Harvard Magazine. And after that, you published a few follow-up pieces that were less widely spread. There was an interview in the Harvard Gazette, And then most recently, you co-authored an article in the Chronicle of Social Change called No Need for Bullying in the Debate on Homeschooling. And that was with Rachel and also with Jim Dwyer, who's been a guest on this podcast, Milton Gaither, and Frank Vandervoort. And I was wondering if we could start with you, Elizabeth, and just give me the really basic version of the message that you were trying to send with these uh, initial articles. So it's hard to
1: sum up, I guess, my 80-page review <laughs> in one basic message. So it 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 may come out as a few basic messages, but I think a major message is that I um was struck as I looked at the world of homeschooling and the research and Um, in connection with that world on the degree to which it was, as I say in the title of the Law Review article, a realm in which parent rights absolutism was being asserted. That uh, At least many people, many leaders of what I call the homeschooling movement, uh, take the position on, as I describe it in that article, that parent rights are and ought to be absolute and they ought to have total control over their children, the right to keep them at home, the right to educate them, the right to be completely free from any state uh, surveillance or regulation in terms of whether actually they're educating those children. And to a fair degree, the right to be free from any uh, surveillance or intervention in connection with child maltreatment. So I've spent the last 30 plus years, maybe 35 years focused on child rights and interests, and I have come increasingly to think in the course of all that work, you know. Until the last two years, it didn't have to do with homeschooling. But in the context of all that work, I've come to think that it's a real problem in this country that child rights are so underrated, and that we provide so much protection to parent rights, very little to child rights. And I think that's a problematic state of law, much broader than homeschooling. But I was shocked to find that it was those attitudes were as extreme as they were in the realm of homeschooling. Um, And then if I looked more particularly to homeschooling and messages beyond that, I just came to be very concerned that this parent rights absolutism had succeeded in eliminating virtually all meaningful regulation. And Mm -hmm. that meant that parents were, um, as I claim in the article, essentially free to educate their children or not educate them, free to uh, abuse and neglect their children or not, that the level of hands-off by states uh, is extreme, in my view, much too extreme, and I suppose more particular than, and I'll stop, is that absence of regulation leads me to have a couple of very major concerns. You know, one is that children, some in a subset, and we don't know how large the subset is, are not getting an adequate education in terms of some of the basics that would enable them to go on to various forms of employment. Secondly, that children are. Um, at risk for abuse and neglect because there were none of the usual uh, protections for children that exist in the public school world with mandated reporters for child protective services. And then a third concern I have is that some number, and we don't know what the number is, but I think a significant number from the best I can glean from the best research out there, a significant number of homeschooling families are um, committed to raising their children in isolation from views and values different from the parents. And I think that's problematic. Um, I think children should be seen as having a right to be exposed to views and values other than their parents or whatever religious or cultural group the parents belong to. I think children um, should be seen as having a right to what's often called an open future to make up their own minds when they become adults, as to what views, values they um, will hold, what religion they might claim as theirs, and what, um, you know, lifestyle in terms of employment, but also culture they want to live. And I think if they grow up isolated from anything other than their parents' views and values, it's extremely difficult to expect that a significant number of them be able to, if they want to, escape that world.
0: That is a very thorough introduction, thank you. And this is why I wanted to have you on the show, Elizabeth, because um, already I think there's a lot more nuance that is coming out than a lot of people picked up from the, again, the, the one publication that most people read. And so uh, I'm looking forward to really getting into this, and I'd like to ask you just a little bit more about your background, and then we're going to turn it over to Rachel. Um, Do you have any personal experience with homeschoolers or homeschooling or any form of alternative education like that, Elizabeth?
1: No, I was not homeschooled myself. I did not homeschool my children. I, um, my introduction really to the homeschooling world was primarily through the research I did, which included a huge amount of you know oral interviews, not just reading stuff. Um, but I, I don't have direct experience as parent or child with being homeschooled. I have certainly talked to some number of of. Um, youth, uh, including youths at Harvard Law School who grew up in school. So mm-hmm. there are many, many conversations I've had, but no direct experience.
0: Okay, thank you. And when we were discussing the possibility of this podcast, mm-hmm. you said, I definitely want to bring someone else on. And the person at the top of your list was Rachel Coleman. So can you briefly tell me why you wanted Rachel to, uh, to be a part of this conversation also? And then Rachel, I'd love to hear about your background Relating to this entire world.
1: Well, first I want to tell you why I wanted um, someone else, <laughs> and then why I thought Rachel would be, you know, a good person. I wanted someone else or some others because I think that a terribly misleading impression has been given by all the publicity devoted to me. So it's misleading both in terms of. How my position has been characterized. It's been grossly inaccurately um, characterized, and I'm really pleased to have this chance to talk to your audience um, in part for that reason. But it's also all this attention to me has meant, um, I think, that there's this impression given that I'm the main person making these. Uh, proposals for regulation in the area of homeschooling. And I'm the main person with concerns about what's going on in the world of unregulated homeschooling. And that's completely not true. So I arrived as a relative newcomer of two to three years ago, you know, it, looking in with any intensity at issues of homeschooling. There are lots and lots of scholars and activists and um, uh, and I'm not quite sure how I would characterize Rachel, but I think she's both scholar and uh, activist and advocate in this field um, and also has personal knowledge. But there are lots of people, including Rachel, whose work, my work built on. There are lots of shared concerns that I have with a huge range of others, you know, most of whom I cite in my law review article. and. Um, You know, we have differences and Rachel and I have differences in terms of particular regulatory proposals. But there are lots and lots of people who share my view that significant additional new regulation is needed in the world of homeschooling. So I just thought that was important to um, make evident. And that's part of why we wrote the joint op ed was to help illustrate that point. Um, I think that, you know. Rachel Coleman is a wonderful person to have on this program because she does have a direct experience growing up, having been homeschooled, and then also as the founder and director of this CHRE organization of formerly homeschooled people, I believe it consists of entirely, um, certainly mostly. I think that she, in an ongoing way, has very direct knowledge of people who've grown up being homeschooled, and she's also studied for many, many years um, what's the impact of certain forms of unregulated homeschooling on children, and she's been a serious advocate of very specific forms of regulation over the years. She keeps incredible, and her organization does, a wonderful website and wonderful um, track of what's going on in the world of homeschooling, both in terms of you know, various kinds of abuses, but also in terms of what regulation does and doesn't exist. So uh, that, that, that's part of why she was at the top of my list.
0: Thanks. And yeah, Rachel, the Coalition for Responsible Home Education has been on my radar for a long time, too. I'm really glad to have you here. And can you tell us a bit about your background, how you came into this world, and what's important to you?
2: So as has been mentioned, I was homeschooled from kindergarten through high school. I attended Ball State University on scholarship. I had a full tuition scholarship there and was in the honors college um, and graduated with a near perfect uh, GPA. I actually did my master's degree also at Ball State University, and I wrote about the history of the homeschool community there. Um, My question was that there, there were no existing studies looking at the development of a homeschooling community over time. There were plenty of studies that looked at homeschoolers at a given moment, but I was kind of saying, you know, who started homeschooling here? Why did they start? I actually, I had a professor who focused on network theory. And I was really interested in that. So I met homeschoolers uh, in Muncie, many, many of them, surveyed many of them, attended their groups, um, really dug into their local online networks, did uh, in-depth interviews in the homes with several families, and ended up writing my master's thesis looking at the changes in homeschooling networks over time and changes also in parents' reasons for homeschooling, but also in the exclusiveness of or inclusiveness of various forms of um, homeschool groups, but also homeschool communication. And so it was very interesting to me. So then I attended Indiana University, where I actually studied under um, a professor there who is um, really focuses on children's rights. And I took, I even took class in the law school on children's rights. It was really, really fascinating to me. Um, and, and I really came to have a, a focus on the history of children in childhood. And I wrote my uh, PhD, my dissertation on changing evangelical ideas about childhood. And part of the question I really was trying to ask there was why did evangelicals all of a sudden decide in the 1970s and 1980s that they did not want their children to attend public school? And it seemed to me that something big had changed because um, I, I, <laughs> I actually went back to the 1950s trying to ground it and was finding things. that I was just like, what is going on here? Because prior to that period, evangelicals were incredibly um, pro-public schools. They opposed private schooling and um, were very big on public schools being sort of essential to the American project. And I was trying to figure out how did they get from there to becoming big proponents today of school choice. And so that's what I wrote about in my dissertation, which was also really fascinating. Now, while I was getting my PhD at Indiana University, I got a phone call from my younger brother. At the time, he was about 17, still in high school, and he was really, really worried about a friend of his. And so he got me in touch with her. She was, I forget, 16 or 17. She was not receiving an education of any sort. She was being homeschooled. She was also being exploited for labor. So her father was abusive to not only her and her siblings, but also to her mother. And he also did not have a job. And she and her siblings were being forced to clean houses and do a variety of other jobs um, off the books. And the money was all going to her father, who was, that's what they were living on. And she had not had any sort of educational interaction or intervention from her parents since she was about in the fourth grade. They had not consciously tried to teach her. She was working to try to teach herself. She cobbled together some textbooks she found in different places, but she was being required to work basically a full-time job. And when she was at home, she was being expected to care for her younger siblings and maintain the household. So she had very little time to even try to teach herself the concepts she needed. She was in a family where none of her, you know, her parents, they hadn't gone to college and she saw college as her way out as many, many low-income children you know, growing up in families like this do. That if they can get an education, they can get out of what they have identified as an abusive cycle that their family is in. But for her, that looked impossible because her older sister had turned 18 and had never been given a high school diploma or any sort of educational documents. So she was basically going to end up being a high school dropout Uh, except maybe even worse because there was no, you know, verification that she'd even done 10th grade or something. It was, there was just be nothing. And so she sort of saw that all as just being a complete, she, she was so upset. And I talked to her and I tried to figure out how I could help her. And I looked up the law in Indiana and I found, you know, nobody checks in on kids who are homeschooled to make sure that they're receiving an education. There's, nothing and i found that in indiana the only way to help out in a situation like this was actually to call child protective services which was extremely concerning to me because it seems to me that social workers case workers they're trained in identifying abuse and neglect and not educational neglect they're not teachers they're not educators and if a family you know if they're only The only concern is that they're not educating their children. That does not seem like a great intervention um, to try to help when that's not what that system really is for. Um, Now, in her case, there was also abuse. And I I won't go into the rest of the story except to say that she is now in her mid-20s and still has not gotten that four-year college degree she wanted. She is still working multiple jobs trying to cobble things together with this dream, this vision of maybe someday she will get that. But it took her so long to make up for any of the deficiencies. She didn't even have a social security number when she finished high school, or you know, a driver's license or anything. There wasn't a record that she was (laughs) really a person. And she had to fix all of those things one at a time to even get to that next step. So she really seeing that really made me think because I knew I had received a great education. And I wasn't unschooled, but actually my parents really involved me in the educational decisions. And so I really felt that I was driving my education in a way that I really loved. It was a very positive experience in that way. But to realize that others were having experiences that were this negative really shook me. And I started to think about when I was growing up, I kind of assumed that everyone was being educated. And I realized, you know, I started identifying families that I had known where all of those kids in their mid to late 20s were living at home working at McDonald's today because they didn't really have any other options. And this included, in some cases, parents... Kids with parents who are college educated. College is not for everyone. Absolutely not. In fact, my husband and I try to communicate that to our children. If they would rather go into a trade, that's fine. That's great. But to not have access is the problem. To not have it available as an option. And when you look and you see that a family has six, seven, eight, nine children, and none of them have gone to college or even obtained any sort of higher education, and they're all just working at a local McDonald's, that really starts to raise questions about whether... The way that they were homeschooled limited their prospects. Whereas for me, the way that I was homeschooled, I had a myriad of prospects. It was just completely different. And I realized that how things go in one homeschool situation doesn't really tell you anything about how they're going in the family across the street. Such an individual thing. Uh, that I got such a good education, yet other people that I knew growing up or that my brother knew were absolutely struggling. And and one more thing, in that the, my brother's friend's case, if she had gone to public school, it would have been her respite. It's not that it would have been perfect, but she would have found a teacher who believed in her or a guidance counselor who could help her find scholarships available to first generation college students. And she would have finished high school with a diploma that her parents could not have deprived her at, from. Whereas she didn't have any of that being homeschooled. So it's yes, there are children who attend public school of a bad experience, and I absolutely think schools need to be improved. But in her case, homeschooling really cut off any avenues that she would have had. And so that really sort of made me start thinking. And then around a couple years later, I was in a number of alumni groups on Facebook and just kept bumping into other people who were talking about similar issues they'd seen. In some cases, they received a deficient education themselves that limited them, in in like my brother's friend. In other cases, they received a great education like I did, but they knew people who didn't. and, And they were concerned. Now, about this same time we learned about the deaths of Lydia Schatz and Hannah Williams, who are both homeschooled. They both were in religious homeschool settings. Uh, they both, uh, their parents used the, the child rearing manual written by Michael Pearl. And um, many of those of us who were sort of looking at that had grown up in, in religious homeschooling homes. And we were just completely horrified by that um, because, you know, we were familiar with these same names and to see that these children had had such, horrific end. I mean, Lydia Schatz was spanked to death over the course of hours. uh, What happened is she had tissue breakdown and it shut down her liver. Hannah Williams was locked outside of her family's home for disobedience until she contracted hypothermia and died, writhing on the ground while her family watched, saying that uh, she was exaggerating. Um, And so we started paying attention to other cases that were similar because our question was, where else has this happened? And we started finding so many cases. Where parents had taken advantage of and abused homeschool laws to hide abuse—really horrific abuse—children made to wear dog shock collars or kept in cages for years. That one struck me. That was a, a boy in my own home state was kept for three years in a cage with no clothing, and he was—I mean, he was like twelve years old. So um, we started finding these cases and started asking ourselves, how could this method of education, that for some of us had been great, for others of us had had its limitations? But it, you know, we're talking educational limitations to see that these horrific cases of abuse really um, horrified us and we felt that we felt very strongly that existing homeschool groups tended to advocate or sorry not existing homeschool groups but existing groups that speak on this issue in general tended to either advocate for homeschooling parents in a way that could become very individualized there I, I think one thing that happens is homeschooling parents get very focused on their own children which is good that's who they're responsible for educating but what I like to try to explain is that you may know that your children are doing great and they are doing great, but you don't know that about all other, all the other 2 million children being homeschooled. You don't know that every one of them is doing great. And when we talk about having some sort of oversight to protect these children, this isn't, this isn't an attempt to sort of, um, you know, like some sort of smack down of an individual family or like, you know, people tend to take it very personally. And I think that's unfortunate. And I think Sometimes that may be because the various pieces in the narrative that need to be improved, but it's not, it's not meant to be a personal thing. It's not to say that every homeschooling situation is having these problems, just that these problems are out there and we need to find a way to solve them where they occur. So we felt that a lot of these groups either advocated for parents in sort of a very individualized, atomized way that did not take into account the situations of everyone who's being homeschooled, or they were teachers Organizations, teachers, um, unions that opposed homeschooling entirely and said, we need to ban homeschooling unless the parent has a teaching license, they have to use state mandated curriculum. And we do not agree with that at all. You know, my mother didn't have a teacher's license, and I got a great education. Um, she put together curriculum from various sources depending on, on what we needed. You know, we absolutely oppose attempts to create that level of uniformity. So we felt that those groups, too, were not really speaking for the children. And, and that no group was out there really advocating directly for children who were homeschooled. And we felt that as alumni, as individuals who had been homeschooled, who knew what it was like to be a child who was homeschooled, that we were well positioned to become a voice for homeschooled children and to advocate specifically for the needs of homeschooled children. Um, so we founded CRHE in 2013, done a, a lot of things. Since then, uh, we do research as well as advocacy, uh, really fascinating research. We actually have an upcoming paper next month, uh, two papers, actually, in the Journal of Other Education. Um, one of them looks at testing data from Alaska with findings that I don't think, I don't, and I don't think this research has done it, been done anywhere else like this. We, we actually found that counterintuitively t- to what people might think, it was the low income kids and the minority kids who outperformed, who were homeschooled white kids who are homeschooled underperformed their peers and it's it was utterly fascinating and it's actually something that I've been using as I talk to school districts that are looking at the possibility of distance learning in the fall and that is trust minority parents don't assume based on various stereotypes that they're not able to provide what their children need and in many cases um you know distance learning will involve some sort of curriculum put together by the district, but we're encouraging them to see parents as learning partners, even in those cases, um, and also to be flexible and to allow parents to sort of uh, go rogue and develop their own programming for different areas, um, because we believe that parent involvement and investment is critical to making education in the home uh, successful. So, so that. Is coming out next month. Um, Another thing that we've been doing increasingly is um, trying to provide resources for homeschooling parents. Our most visited pages on our website are our pages on how to develop a homeschool diploma and how to develop a homeschool transcript. The visitorship of those pages far outstrips the entire rest of our website. And we are actually currently in the beginning stages of developing a home educator's course where uh, parents can enroll and a qualified educator will, um, who by the way, the individual we're working with has been working on homeschooling for years. She's absolutely pro good, positive child-centered homeschooling. This is no like, this is not a kind of program where we're gonna try to talk people out of it or something. What it is is we wanna try to provide tools about um, learning styles, about how do you go about choosing a curriculum? That can be very overwhelming for many parents. So, you know, what things do you consider? What things do you think about? What are some common challenges? How can you rise to them and and overcome them? Part of the reason for this course is that we have seen over the past couple of years an increasing number of parents reach out to us and contact us saying, I want to homeschool, but I don't think I have the tools I need to do it. I'm not confident that I can homeschool well. Can you help me? And so what we want to say to those parents is, you know, that we have this prep course that they can take that will really help empower them. How do you keep records? How do you make sure that you are, um, you know, inspiring your child's love of learning? I'll, I'll never forget when I did these interviews in um, Muncie, when I was working on my master's thesis, I heard these parents who were saying worksheets are bad. Public schools are like these stultifying forces that push kids into boxes. We are empowering and freeing children. And then I went into this one home and this mother assigned this little boy, probably seven years old, to complete some sort of a spelling worksheet. He was so angry. He sat there for over an hour, just angry, refusing to do it. He didn't want to do it. His mom kept saying he had to do it, kept putting it back in the chair. Um, finally, after like an hour and a half, he slipped out of the chair, went under the table, completed the sheet, and then filled it full of punches with his pencil and turned it in. And I was just... To me, that didn't seem like it was a realization of this ideal to, you know, really empower children and give them a love of learning. know, it wasn't helping this poor kid to spend an hour and a half sitting at a table, filling out a worksheet he did not want to do. Um, and so we want to really sort of empower parents to do these things and to say um, and, you know, to support and empower their children And it doesn't mean like telling them what curriculum. We don't have our own curriculum or any sort of mandate, but giving them the tools that they need to then go out there and empower their children in ways we know that they can. Um, So that's another thing we've been doing increasingly as well. Um, I think that's, I mean, that's a pretty good overview of a a bunch of what we've been doing and of of my background, I think. I I do also have two children. Um, They are 8 and 11, they attend public school. For me, it's about what is best for the family in the situation. We live in a place that has a public school that offers an African-centric curriculum program. And to me, I loved the idea of putting them in an environment where they're getting a different perspective, even than what I could provide, um, both on the world and on, you know, these values and norms and ideas. And so we've had a really good experience with that. Um, But, you know, my daughter's about to start middle school. And if she does face bullying or other problems, I absolutely would pull her out to to homeschool her if if that's what she wanted. Um, I actually, there are some things I've missed about not being able to homeschool my children during their elementary years. Um, Obviously I've, you know, made the choice I feel is best for us. But when I was a kid, you know, we would just all sit down and build a a model of a, a Egyptian bark, a ship out of cardboard and mom would read aloud from like the cataboo basties or like all these fun books and there was a lot of it was fun, it was enjoyable. And now I can only take my kids to museums on the weekends or when school's out. So there are times where, you know, I'm like, oh maybe I should. So I'm I'm I have so many positive memories of being homeschooled during those years. Mm. Um, But anyway, so that's me. So I do have kids and I do face these issues and think about them myself. I also have friends who homeschool, neighbors who homeschool, my children's best friends homeschool. um, And I know people who are planning to start homeschooling next year, um, good friends of mine due to COVID-19 and health
0: issues in their families. Thank you, Rachel. That was extremely informative. I want to share a bit of my background also, just so we have shared context, and then we'll get into our questions So, I was not homeschooled either or alternatively educated. I went to California public schools. I did well. I went straight into college. And I only discovered the world of alternative education um, when I was in college and ended up designing my own degree to study it. And what captivated me the most were the the more radical alternatives, like democratic free schools, where there's no required curriculum whatsoever, but young people are participating in a very empowering uh, and very directly democratic way within the operation of the school and also unschooling. I was exposed to, uh, you know, the, the most self-directed version of homeschooling. And it made me realize that there's so much you can do with these highly liberal um, or let's say, you know, lightly regulated homeschooling laws. And I ended up getting to work with lots of families who are more on, you know, I'd say uh, somewhere between how your family seemed to raise you, Rachel, and then families who are just like, no curriculum, free child, full-on unschooling. And uh, I've seen a lot of good come out of this. And so this is just my my bias that I'm bringing to the table here. I've seen uh, overwhelmingly parents who are highly invested in their kids' learning and, and life and educations, like they're very there, um, they care, and. Uh, and who are pretty flexible in their thinking too. They're not dogmatically homeschooling or unschooling or sending their kid to a democratic free school. Um, if something is not working for their kid in the, in the chosen educational environment, they will consider different alternatives across the spectrum. And so my experience working uh, both with parents and more so with teenagers who have uh, are usually more on the unschooling side of things has been overwhelmingly positive. and my exposure, to uh, families that seem to be homeschooling for, for less desirable reasons to, to shelter or to even abuse kids is essentially zero. And so listening to some of the stories that you just shared, Rachel, you know, that's shocking stuff. And I'd seen a few little news headlines here and there, uh, but overwhelmingly I have no exposure to this. And so I'm looking at this conversation as an opportunity for me to learn also about some parts of the homeschooling world Uh, for which I I don't have much awareness. And so with that, uh, why don't we go forward? Uh, The first question I wanted to ask is, I think we need to agree upon something, which is when we're talking about homeschoolers in the United States, who are these people? And what are their motivations? How many of them are there? Because different people are throwing around different numbers. And so I think I'd like to start with you, Rachel, and then Elizabeth, you can fill us in on uh, maybe what numbers or Kind of representation, especially religious representation, you cited in your uh, Arizona Law Review piece?
2: Okay, well, we don't have numbers. So we have estimates, and that's part of why there's different numbers. But there are quite a few states that don't require parents to uh, tell anyone that they're homeschooling. So it simply is not possible to know how many people are homeschooled. As to the other piece of your question, though, which is, you know, how are we identifying these families? The other paper that is being published in the Journal of Other Education next month addresses this question. It is all about how do we define who is a homeschooling parent? How do we define which families are homeschooling? And it's a really, really, really fascinating long history of this question that goes back to 2003 when a group of mostly religious homeschoolers published a statement denouncing virtual schools and virtual charter schools and saying that they can never, ever call themselves homeschoolers. They should not ever, because anyone who's enrolled in a government program by default is not homeschooled. Interestingly enough, uh, there was young, a woman in, a, actually, she was a homeschool leader in California who responded to it and said, this is ridiculous, because she said, the whole state of California, there's not a single homeschooler, if you're going to be specific about it, because the state does not have a homeschool law every child who is homeschooled in California is actually a private school student. The same is true in a bunch of other states, including Texas. Now, obviously, I don't know any homeschool groups who would argue that there are no homeschoolers in Texas, so we can't be using legal definitions. She also argued that you can't exclude people enrolled in these public school programs and charter programs. She said some of them are some of the most active people in the homeschool group she had, sometimes people who live back in the mountains, and that's why they were in these programs. They still use them, but they consider themselves homeschoolers. So after this huge discussion we have in our paper, which I hope you will read because it's really, really interesting stuff, and you don't necessarily have to agree with where we come in our definition. We basically decide that homeschoolers are those who are educated in the home by their parents' choice, regardless of what curriculum program they use, regardless of whether they're in an online school program. If they are homeschooled in the home by the parents' choice, we consider them to be homeschooled. Now, we're also trying to argue that the term homeschool is sort of an umbrella term and that you should then say, okay people who are not in any sort of government or charter program, maybe you could call them autonomous homeschoolers. Um, obviously you have unschoolers. You can break this down in a number of different ways. You're religious homeschoolers or what have you. So our, our argument is that homeschooling should be seen as something that embraces every family that has chosen to educate their child in a home, regardless of exactly what program they're using. Um, now, the other piece is, I think that you because I've seen some of your other questions you're trying to get at is a question about religious homeschoolers, how many homeschoolers are religious. And I would note that I think that the influence of religious homeschoolers, namely evangelical Christian homeschoolers, far outstrips their percentage of the population of homeschoolers. So in most states, for example, the dominant homeschool group is the religious homeschool group. Some states only have one state level homeschool group, and it is the Religious Homeschool Group, generally affiliated with the Homeschool Legal Defense Association, which is also religious and does this parental rights absolutism um, that Elizabeth has referenced. So I, I don't know if you've read this book, but I would highly recommend Mitchell Stevens' Kingdom of Children, published in 2000. He does some very deep ethnography with both religious homeschooling families and unschooling and secular families. He ends up concluding that the reason that religious homeschoolers control The sort of overarching structure of so much of the homeschool organizations, um, and remember he was writing in 2000, is because they create hierarchical organizations. He argued that um, unschoolers, more progressive families, they're more likely to create organizations that are governed by consensus and less likely to push things on their members. So there was a bill in 1994 that the religious homeschoolers decided in Congress was a very bad bill. They immediately contacted all of their different families, this was HSLDA, saying, you have to call Congress now and tell them that this bill would ban homeschooling and they have to not do it. The unschooling families looked at the bill and said, we don't think that's at all what's going on. This bill is clearly not meant to be about homeschoolers. Like, Maybe they should clarify to make sure it's clear, but like, this is not a stealth attempt to ban homeschooling. So they reached out to their members and said, hey, just so you know, there's this bill. Here's what the bill says. Here's some different opinions on it do what you feel is best. And so that sort of, that's a movement built on consensus and on people making the decisions they feel is best is not going to dominate a landscape in the way that a movement based on hierarchy and top-down control is. And so for that reason, in most places, religious homeschoolers, even if they are not, you know, a large majority or even a majority at all, dominate a lot of the different homeschooling structure. Now, I found in my MA thesis that Some of this started to change with the advent of the internet because religious groups that had acted as gatekeepers before couldn't control the information the way they had before. Previously, if you wanted to start homeschooling, you asked at your local library, they would give you the names of the local homeschool group, which tended to be religious. Um, My parents were involved in one. And then people like my parents would put together and send out a homeschool information packet to that family. It would include things like copies of Michael Pearl's book on childbearing. It would only include Christian materials and leave out anything that was considered, you know, not Christian enough. And the result was that they really controlled not only, not, you know, not only, they controlled the landscape down to how people homeschooled. Once the internet happened, in the community that I looked at in my master's thesis, the, this was all replaced by a Yahoo group which was very egalitarian. Anyone could send a question to the group and get responses. Nobody was moderate. I, I assume there'd be some moderation, but you know, nobody was was taking down things because like, that's a secular curriculum. So um, now a lot of that has moved on to Facebook. So it has become the easier to enter the homeschooling world and access information from a variety of perspectives. There's less gatekeeping now than there was. But in terms of if, if a reporter is doing a story and they want to talk to some state level group about homeschooling, they're going to be talking to the people who are the HSLEA affiliates for that state. So there's a outsized presence. Um, I I can go and leave it at that. I think.
0: Okay. I agree with you that the internet has really shifted things and that's why a book written 20 years ago might have a lot of catching up to do. Um, Elizabeth, you emphasize in your article that even though we don't know how many homeschoolers there are, that you're confident that many or most of them, or maybe even up to 90% of them are conservative Christian. Where does that figure come from?
1: I, and you would have to go look at the footnotes in the article, but what I emphasize is 50 to 90%, which is another way of saying what Rachel said. We don't know the numbers. We cannot study this population in part. So homeschooling is, is, so absent of any meaningful regulation. And uh, we don't know. I completely agree with Rachel, though, that the overwhelmingly dominant political force is the conservative religious group. And it's led by the HSLDA leaders. And they, they call the shots in terms of the politics, in terms of the lobbying etc. I, I think in terms of your question sort of who are the homeschoolers, what I would like to emphasize is first, we don't know. I know that of, of, from all the research, at least, a very significant percentage, a majority, and who knows how, how large a majority, are conservative religious homeschooling parents. But uh, beyond that, you know, that doesn't mean they're all bad homeschooling parents are doing bad things in, in, with their kids or their kids are at risk. I think there's huge variety in the homeschooling population. I think there's a huge number of parents who for all you know, whatever their religious affiliation, have chosen a homeschool because they think they will do better by their children educationally than the public schools in their area. I think there's a whole lot of homeschoolers who are doing it because the schools in their area present particular problems in terms of bullying, in terms of racism, in terms of not addressing the needs of kids with disabilities and other issues. There are parents who homeschool because their kids need flexibility um, because they want to pursue particular passions and talents that, that those kids have. And, you know, I think no doubt, the great majority, although we don't know because we can't do good research at the moment, but a um, great majority of homeschooling parents may be doing an adequate job educationally. Don't know. So um, what I think we do know is that in the absence of regulation, there are very real risks for kids. And we definitely see evidence of those So, I think one of the ways in which my position has been mischaracterized is um, it's characterized as, you know, your questions imply that I have a position about homeschooling parents and all homeschooling, and it's either positive or negative. No, it's unregulated homeschooling that I'm concerned with. It's the absence of any meaningful regulation, and thus the freedom that various parent groups within the homeschooling community have, you know, both to do really problematic things in terms of child abuse, um, but also there's a risk that some of them are going to be absolutely inadequate to provide the fundamentals of, you know, education that I think almost everybody in America would agree kids need to have certain skills to give them various employment and other choices in the future. So, you know, it's hugely varied. There's no way in which I would sort of condemn most homeschooling parents. I I think the the condemnation is the unregulated state of homeschooling. The fact that legislators have Failed to keep on the books meaningful regulation and failed to pass regulation even in the face of horrible abuse scandals. And then the fault there lies both, I think, in the cowardice, I guess I'd call it, of legislators, but it's also the power of this narrow conservative religious political group that's personified in the HSLDA. So they've got the kind of power that the gun lobby has. They don't represent significant numbers, but they have near or have proved to have so far near overwhelming power in terms of preventing legislators from doing what I think legislators would do if they felt free to act Rationally, if they felt free to weigh the risks to children, the benefits to children, and decide what kind of regulation we ought to have, they don't feel that freedom. Because if one of them chooses to introduce a bill based of some murder, torture of a child saying, you know, maybe we should have a check with Child Protective Services before you're allowed to homeschool, the next day they're going to be 200 homeschoolers in that legislator's office. And the kind of, you know, heat... Email that I've been subjected to by the hundreds, and they're just going to withdraw it. It's not worth it to most legislators, indeed to hardly any legislators find it worth it to fight that kind of opposition, particularly when nobody is providing equivalent pressure on the other side. So there's no significant political force on the side of protecting children, developing the kind of regulation that would protect children.
0: I want to circle back, Elizabeth, to what you were saying as the positive parts of homeschooling and the reasons, the positive reasons that families choose to homeschool. And I think what a lot of people um, got afraid of in reading your publications was the phrase presumptive ban. And it made it sound like by default, homeschooling would be outlawed unless you could prove a, a very good, perhaps an extreme need for homeschooling. And so I, I'd actually like to, to flip this upside down for a moment and ask you um, if we did an outright ban without exceptions, like Germany does to homeschooling, um, what do you feel like would be lost in that? So it's another way of asking what are the, the advantages, the good parts about homeschooling?
1: Right. I think um it would be a bad idea to ban homeschooling altogether. And I'm glad for this question because so many of the HSLDA um, the homeschoolers, they've been led by the HSLDA to believe that I proposed an absolute ban or a near-absolute ban, and I did not. Now, what I what I propose may still seem to many too extreme, but what I propose is that yes, there be a burden of justification on parents to demonstrate that they actually have the capacity to provide an adequate education at home. Um, that doesn't mean as an absolute matter, they would have to have high school degree or college degree. But if they don't have a high school degree, then I think they need to demonstrate why, even if they haven't had much of an education themselves, they're going to be able to capable of providing their kids an adequate education. So instead of parents having an absolute right to just, yep, withdraw, want to do this at home, nobody checks anything, I think parents should have to justify withdrawing their kids and have a reason that they think they will do better by their kids' education and also have some um, justification in terms of how and why they're qualified to teach? And also, are they going to make a commitment to teaching the broad range of subjects that public school, education, and our state commissioners of education consider the minimum that children should learn? So I don't think it's enough that, oh, you know, I'm going to teach my kid math, and that's it, and I don't care about that other stuff, I think, you know, roughly speaking, the public school curriculum ought to be something that homeschooling parents are willing to commit to and demonstrate that they're able to teach. So presumptive ban simply means shifting the burden of justification to parents, Um, And, you know, in some ways, the current regime acts as if, of course, you're supposed to have credentials and, you know, be teaching your kids something if you're going to keep them home. But the burden is, you know, the parents don't have any burden to demonstrate they're going to do any of that or they're capable of doing any of that. So I think they should have that burden. And secondly, I think even for parents who are Homeschooling in my preferred regulatory regime, I think their kids should have some exposure to the public schools environment. So I think they should have to, you know, there'd be different ways to do this, but I think they should perhaps take a course or two every year at the public school and engage in some extracurricular activities. And that's because I think children, what I said earlier, I think children have a right to be exposed to views and values other than those of their parents. And there's no way to guarantee that if 24 seven, those kids are at home, even if the parents do have the credentials to teach and even if they do commit to teaching the public school curriculum, and even if their kids can pass some tests about civics or history, it. I still think those children need and deserve some exposure to other kids and also I think they need the protection that getting out of their parents house into an environment that has mandated reporters provides. So our creation as a nation of mandated reporters for child abuse was one of the major first steps forward in terms of protecting kids against abuse and neglect and I think that public schools are the most important provider of that protection. So we know from the statistics that the largest group of reporters to Child Protective Services are teachers and other school personnel. Eliminating that protection for children, I think, is a disaster. And I think that even if, and of course, the homeschooling leaders resist or the movement leaders resist any check whatsoever in the home, even a once a year mandatory reporter visit. But even if they allowed that, that's not going to protect kids. Kids need eyes on them other than their parents in their daily lives on a regular basis if they're to be protected. And it's not that I'm saying a significant percentage of homeschooling parents are going to be abusing and neglecting their kids, but we should care about the subset of seriously abused and neglected kids. Our whole system is designed to protect subsets. I mean, if you look overall at why we created a child protection system, it's not because you know, 10% or 20% of all parents in the United States abuse their kids. No, it's because a very small percentage does. But for those kids' rights to be protected, we need a system that means you know all kids Are under some observation so that those kids that show up with horrible bruises and burns at school can be reported.
0: Well, I'm very sympathetic to that final thing that you said, Elizabeth, which is looking out for that very small subset of kids who could be abused, um, and homeschooling laws can play a large part in that. Um, I've also met a lot of families in. Europe and in South America and some other parts of the world over recent years who have regulatory schemes that I think are much closer to what you're proposing than what we have in the Mm -hmm. United States. I've met so so many families who'd say, you know, we are just so uh, envious of what you have in the US. I wish I could homeschool my kid, but the, the, you know, it's so burdensome and essentially the state won't let me do it. And because it's so burdensome, if we are allowed to homeschool, there's so few other kids that the community is is essentially non-existent, which is its own challenge. Anyways, we're starting to blend our question list here. And Mm -hmm. uh, uh, in a moment, I want to hear from you, Rachel.
1: Can I I just add, I'm sorry, because you did ask me what I see as some of, do I see any advantages to homeschooling? Absolutely. I think there are lots of parents who are doing a much better job for their kids than um, if those children were in the public schools. I think there are lots of failings in the public schools. For the most part, I think we need to put energy into reforming and improving the public schools rather than give up on them. But I, I think it's fine for some parents to be in the current state of things if they can do a better job for their kids it's a good thing if those kids are having, you know, learning in a more creative environment, being protected from bullying. Um, And, you know, there's some just super terrific, um, uh, smart, educated parents who are giving, you know, much better education than the normal public school, even if it wasn't a bullying situation could provide. So I think there's, you know, Lots of pluses in homeschooling. Um, it's the unregulated state and the, the need to protect the subset of homeschooled children that I'm concerned with. Mm-hmm.
0: Thank you. Rachel, uh, I'd love for you to summarize what you see as the biggest disadvantages and, and the blind spots in the state of homeschooling regulation in the United States right now. We've already touched on a number of these, but mm-hmm. what's top of the list for you?
2: So I'm going to start with something that's less about a specific possible legal change and and more about understanding why things can go wrong. And that is, as I see it, homeschooling gives parents a great deal of power. And for parents who take that power and use it to empower their children and give their children opportunities, that can be a wonderful, wonderful thing. If I were to homeschool at some point, you know, if if the public schools end up not working for us long-term, I would be going out of my way to provide so many opportunities and to center my children's needs and their wants and to really put them in charge of their education. It can be a very beautiful thing. The problem is that when you take that same level of power and you give it to a, a parent in a family situation where things are, you know, their dynamics are not healthy and the parents... You know, has a history of being abusive and does not treat that child well. There, they can use that power in an incredibly absolute way to harm children. So that same power that is used to benefit one child and allow them to excel in an extremely powerful child-centered way can result in another child being locked in a bedroom for years and. The neighbors don't know that a child even lives there. There was a situation in Georgia where this boy was locked in a bedroom for four years with the windows boarded up, like covered up from the inside to the extent that he had no sun exposure. So his skin was translucent. When he turned 18, his parents wanted to get rid of him. So they put him on a bus to LA with a pamphlet for a homeless shelter. Somebody picked him up there thinking he was 12 because he was so malnourished that he looked like a 12 year old. So one parent, you know, can use homeschooling to absolutely empower kids while another parent uses it to do horrific torture. And so the question is, how do we catch those cases and prevent those cases where homeschooling is used not to empower children, but to maltreat them? Um, and, And we like to say that that's parents taking advantage of the homeschool laws because they're using those laws for something they were never intended to. They are abusing those laws. So we have a number of recommendations. Uh, one is to create some sort of screening system when families begin to homeschool. What that looks like may depend on the state. Um, but to, to give you one example, there was a bill introduced in Pennsylvania that did not pass. All it would have done is if a family removed a child to homeschool them, they had to report that to their school district because in Pennsylvania, you do have to turn in a, a paperwork. The school district would actually send the names to the local agency responsible for child welfare. And the only thing that agency is allowed to do with that is look through and check Was anyone on this list implicated in a founded child abuse or neglect report, a substantiated report in the past 18 months? So it only catches recent cases, only catches cases where there was a finding that abuse or neglect was occurring. And in those cases, the families under that bill, this is so minimalistic, they actually would still have been allowed to homeschool. The local agency responsible for child welfare would simply have been required to check in with them every so often and to do some monitoring to make sure that that was a case of legitimate homeschooling and not parents trying to use homeschooling to abuse. So that's one way to do a screening. Um, Another thing that we've increasingly heard about is parents who remove their children from school after a history of truancy. Um, In Kentucky, two-thirds of children who are removed from school to be homeschooled are chronically truant prior to being removed. And maybe in some cases that's because, you know, school wasn't working for them. They were avoiding school due to bullying, and that's why they had their absences. But two-thirds is such a high number, and it's many times higher than the chronic truancy rate of children overall. Um, and we've actually spoken with state agencies who have become extremely concerned because as soon as somebody's brought up on child truancy issues, they, you know their child is not attending school, there are neglect issues going on in the home, there are other issues, this is not a stable family situation. The family, as soon as the court process starts, will say they're pulling to homeschool to make the court process go away. And this child essentially just disappears. And this is not a child where the families have the resources or the interest in actually homeschooling. So um, there actually is legislation on the books in Florida that says, if you start homeschooling after being chronically truant, then every month for the first year of homeschooling, you need to turn in just some basic Evidence that you're educating your child to a committee made up of a teacher in the school district and local homeschooling parents, and so it basically says if you're saying you're withdrawing your child to homeschool them, you do need to actually do that. And what that evidence of education looks like can be different. It's not you know a set curriculum. Um, It could even be pictures from a museum trip or whatever. But the point is, is education taking place? Um, And so that's another example of a screening. System. So we would like to see more research done to see where things are breaking down in order to create truly effective screening systems that catch only cases where there is genuine risk and not other cases. The second piece that we recommend is ensuring that homeschool children do have contact with mandatory reporters. One way to do that is an annual assessment by a certified teacher, either a portfolio review or a standardized test. Another way is to require homeschooling families to have doctor's visits um, and other medical visits like are required in public schools. Um, you know, actually that reminds me, I have to make sure my child gets her physical. She's supposed to have a physical before sixth grade and I have to make sure I get that paperwork in. So having requirements like that, that put a child in front of a mandatory reporter um, are, are really positive ways to try to catch cases. And I'll give you an example. There was a little girl who was rescued in Ohio, um, a couple of months ago, uh, maybe it was September. Her family was supposed to submit a standardized test in Ohio, or it can be a portfolio, either one, and they didn't. So the school district said, Hey, you're on our books as homeschooling, you need to report, you need, you, know, you need to submit this. So they decided to have a certified teacher proctor an exam for their daughter via a computer. So it's the teacher's online proctoring exam. I didn't even know this was a thing, but apparently it is. And the girl looked just really up, like, things looked like they weren't right. The girl was acting odd. So the teacher asked the girl if she was all right and she said she was hungry and that she was only fed rice once a day. So the teacher, based on this, reported it to Child Protective Services who went and found that she was being kept locked in a trailer in her family's backyard and indeed was only fed rice once a day to the extent that she was not only malnourished, but also had a protein deficiency and almost died of liver failure in the hospital after they removed her. Um, So there's an example where having a required contact with a mandatory reporter did catch this case and it may have saved this girl's life. Um, so that's, you know, that that's kind of shows why this is a positive step that could help protect some kids. But there was a bill that was introduced in Michigan that would have required homeschooled students to have contact with a mandatory reporter at least twice a year and just fill out a form saying they'd seen the kids. And this happened because two bodies were found in a freezer and these children had been gone for years and nobody had reported them missing and their school district hadn't missed them because they were told they were homeschooled. And so it just would have said, you know, if a kid is being homeschooled there has to be documentation that someone has seen them. And in Michigan, a mandatory reporter includes a doctor, a teacher, a dentist, or even a pastor. And yet HSLDA and the homeschool communities, many of them in Michigan. um, And I don't want to act like this was everybody, but it was extremely vocal and a lot of groups acted like this was going to ban homeschooling. And it's just really frustrating to me because if you're homeschooling well, your children are seen by multiple mandatory reporters every month, frankly. I mean, I I was seen by the pastor, I went to the doctor regularly, the dentist, and my mom had a friend who was a teacher who tutored us in Spanish. So many options. It's not a threat to homeschooling to say that parents who are homeschooling should not be able to lock their children in a room and never let them out. So these are the sorts of things that we can do to try to catch these cases.
0: I'm a champion of the kind of homeschooling that you just mentioned, where a kid has exposure to all sorts of different adults, non-parental figures, many of whom I assume are legally mandatory reporters also. And um, yeah, this is, I find this like a concerning conversation for me. I I feel like I've uh, not run across, you know, of course, there are these very emotionally powerful anecdotal stories of the kid in the freezer, or the poor girl being only being fed rice. Um, you know, I would like to, to keep in mind that these may be few and far between, um, like both of you have already said, we don't know for sure. Um, but yeah, this is, okay, th- this prefer- is troubling for me. Go ahead.
2: And it's. I don't think it matters if they're few and far between. First of all, I don't think they are. We spoke with a county attorney in Kentucky who found that one-third of children being homeschooled in her school district had previous subs- child abuse substantiated cases in their families or neglect. One-third of homeschooling families. So not every one of those families is a problem now, but that is a risk factor. These past reports, especially past substantiated reports, are a risk factor. and We know that. This is very well known in child abuse research. So I, I don't think, so when I actually started this, I thought the cases that this happens were something like 5% or less. I genuinely did. When I started seeing these bigger numbers up to a third, I was shocked. I really was. So this first one was this Kentucky finding. One third of the kids of a past child, you know, child abuse substantiated finding in their families. That really shocked me. Then there was the Connecticut finding that One-third of kids removed from school to be homeschooled have multiple or substantiated child abuse reports in their families um, previously, which, again, is around that one-third number. Then, this other Kentucky- Just about the Connecticut study, because in Connecticut, you know,
1: they took all the cases of kids who'd been removed to be homeschooled during a certain period of time, a one-year or two-year period of time, all the cases and discovered one third of them were in these families. Rachel describes with multiple prior child protective services reports. So, you know, some, there isn't enough research Blake, on the extent of the abuse neglect problem, but there is some and some of it's good and it's very disturbing. So it's not just anecdotes. And the other study I'll mention is there's a study of, you know, and it's a small study, but it's child abuse pediatricians looking at a sample of the most serious torture, child torture cases, and discovering that 76% of the torture cases of school-age children involved children who'd been withdrawn from school or never sent to school, 76%, small sample. But you know, that's why we need more research. But I think in the absence of research, we know enough, I mean, I'll just say one thing about a proposed regulation that I think we should have is in, in connection with child abuse, which is, I think there should absolutely be a requirement in every state that if a family wants to homeschool there be a check with child protective services and if that family has a record of abuse and neglect you know and then we could you know discuss how serious a record and substantiated or not but a, a record of abuse and neglect if it's a serious serious abuse and neglect they should not be allowed to homeschool. That is, there's not enough safety for the child in, oh, you know, social workers might come once in a while. There is no reason to allow a family with a history of abuse and neglect to have 24-7 control over their children. I, you know, so I, I agree with a lot of what, of the proposals Rachel's mentioned. I would just say I would go a little farther and that, and that's, you know, one regulation I think we absolutely need is that a kind of, of check and um, don't have it in any state. I mean, there's only a couple of states where there's any link whatsoever between child protective services and homeschooling. And yet we've got evidence of danger in that situation to kids. And we know inherently, everything we know about child abuse, tells us that it occurs in isolated families. That's where it happens. And we know that mandated reporters are helpful. So by definition, homeschooling is risky in that sense. So when you have actual evidence, oh, this family has a history of abuse and neglect. To me, it's crazy. And it is a world in which child rights don't count whatsoever that we would allow those parents to homeschool.
2: Can so, I add something, like?
0: Yeah, yeah. And then I'd love to, to move on Sorry, to our right. next question. Go ahead.
2: To, to finish out my thought, when I started doing this, I really did think it was a much smaller problem. I, it's true we don't know yet exactly how big this problem is. But every data point when we get actually data has been higher than I expected. So I don't, we don't know the exact number, but I think we can say based on the data points we have that it is more substantial than we might guess. The other thing I would say is even if it were just a few cases that would not be a reason not to create protections so for example when those ikea shelves start falling over on kids and some toddlers die nobody says well there was two kids what's the big deal no ikea recalls them all and you know puts out new materials like the kinds of cribs that we make we changed completely based on the deaths of a couple of children. We don't ever say that children are dispensable. We're not going to say that maybe a couple kids' lives is the price we pay to be able to homeschool. That's really, to me, that is the opposite of being focused on children and on children's rights. That is callous disregard of of children's basic humanity. So for me, what we need to do is look at that and say, It doesn't matter how many cases are happening. We wanna look when a case happens and say, what could have prevented this without being a problem for the vast majority of homeschooling parents? If we can find a solution that helps prevent even a couple of children from being killed or brutally tortured while working to make sure that it ensures that the rest of the families are still able, able to homeschool with a flexibility that can make homeschooling beautiful and a positive thing, we should do that. We should be looking for solutions. What we should see right now and what I wish we saw out of the homeschooling community was a glut of discussion of possible solutions because there are many different ways that this could be addressed. And I would love to see homeschooling groups getting in there and saying, well, what if we try this? Well, what if we try this? Because no one should want the price of their educational method to be the death of even one child. That—that That is just not how I think about children or, or humanity. Hmm. And I, I know it's not for you either. I'm hmm. just saying, I want to, I want to give you this perspective because I see people saying this a lot. I see people saying, well, it's just an exception. It's just one or two cases. I <laughs> We try to prevent those one or two cases. We don't shrug. Like that's to me just the wrong way to go about it.
0: Yeah. I appreciate you adding that. Cause I've seen that own line of rationalization appear um, in my own head and I'm glad you put that on the table. Um, I'd like to now turn to a, kind of the, the pushback that I get from a lot of my friends in this community when these cases of abuse or neglect uh, are brought up. Um, the, the, the defense of homeschooling as it's regulated right now is, well, yeah, there's some bad actors and there are some tragedies that happen. But you know what? There's a lot of tragedies that happen in the conventional school system too, both public and private. I think usually people focus on criticizing the public schools. And so, for example, Alex Harris, who's a Harvard Law School grad and who was religiously homeschooled his whole life with one parent who didn't have a high school degree and one parent who only had a high school degree, um, wrote in a long, pretty impassioned Facebook post, he said, you know, there are risks to sending your child to public school, private school or parochial school. As a parent, the fact that children are vulnerable to abuse by any authority figure in their life is a danger I am ever mindful of. And then another major player in this world, Peter Gray, has written extensively um, in his blog posts and also his book um, about what he sees as the the, the many traumas that can be inflicted and are often inflicted by conventional schools on kids, including uh, mental health issues, anxiety anger, boredom, um, actual traumatic experiences, including abuse, uh, sexual abuse, um, stress, uh, the fact that, that, you know, suicidal, uh, you know, opportunities are, are way more prevalent once school goes back in and they, and they drop off when, uh, excuse me, not opportunities, but, uh, you know, visits for uh, suicide to hospitals are, um, are much less prevalent during the summer. And uh, you could even say that bullying itself or the fact that the mere threat of like actually being harmed by violence in schools might be powerful enough counter arguments to say that there will be more kids welfare served by allowing flexible, you know, highly free homeschooling laws to continue. So, Elizabeth, I'd love to hear from you first. Um, How does this line of rebuttal work for you?
1: Well, first, I'd say I'm not arguing that parents who see bullying, sexual abuse, other of those issues named in the public school shouldn't be free to withdraw their kids. I think if they can, you know, make out that case, uh, yes, they should be free to homeschool, However, that, you know, that doesn't mean that, first of all, we have no research talking about, you know, actually how common is, you know, all those problems you named in the public schools and how do we compare that to what's going on in homeschooling. We've just sort of none of that research. What we do know is that in public schools, with all their problems, there are lots of eyes. and those eyes aren't always successful in preventing horrors. Um, I'm conscious of the Gabriel Fernandez case about which an amazing documentary was made, a child in California who was tortured by his parents and who, whose teacher was regularly reporting him. So CPS didn't do what it should have done and protect that child. So, you know, that can happen. Um, public schools, you know, can also engage in their own sort of, or the teachers can, as the other authority figures, bad conduct. But... I still believe overall it's safer for children to have a variety of eyes on the situation. And so if that stuff is going on in schools, at least those parents have, have those kids have parents who can that. At least in public schools, there are other teachers, there are other parents. If a child is, you know, isolated in one home, only those two parents, There's nobody else who can function as a protector for the child.
2: If I can follow up on that, because I, 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 one of the ways that I sometimes think about it is when a child attends school, there's two separate levels of influences in their life. And, And I think, Elizabeth, what you said about parents being able to keep an eye on how things are in the schools is an important point. Because as I see it, to a certain extent, the parents watch the schools and make sure their child... You know, if their child is being seriously mistreated at school, they can pull them out or they can take it through some sort of, um, you know, uh, take it to the school district, take it to, however, try to get this problem fixed, try to expose the problem. And the schools at the same time, and I don't want to say this in a, um, it's not like a negative way, but the, the schools are also watching out for the kids so that if the parents are failing the kids by abusing them, by horrifically neglecting them. Then that school sees that. So you have two different entities both watching out for kids, and it absolutely does not always work. But that's the ideal. Whereas when you go into a homeschool situation, you eliminate one of those, the parents become the school. And it's this really, really impactful piece that was written by a homeschool graduate who basically said her emotionally abusive home became her school. And and just to really get inside that and inside that and realize, you know, she no longer has a respite. For some kids, the home is absolutely a respite from school. Absolutely. And some of those kids, you know, maybe their parents are considering or will homeschool them. For other kids, the school is the respite from the home. And when we combine that, there's no more respite. So if things are great, that's wonderful. You don't have an, you know, extra entity that's maybe negative. But when things go downhill, they go down fast and there's nothing to moderate that. Uh, the stories I've heard from individuals who had emotionally abusive or uh, parents with untreated mental conditions, like um, you know, bipolar or, or narcissistic and not aware of it. I want to be clear. These things can be you know identified, diagnosed, and treated. People can be fine. But undiagnosed, unaddressed, the stories I hear from some of them are really horrific. To grow up knowing you could be screamed at every second of the day, and there's nowhere else you can go to get away from that. So... Absolutely. We need to improve the schools. And actually um, my kids go to a school district last year that called the police and had them handcuff a six year old black boy. And that should not have happened. That led to the school board completely rethinking the role of school resource, um, school resource officers in the schools. And in fact, The parents demanded that the school district sever its relationship with school resource officers. And this just occurs to me that I need to check back in this because the last I heard, several of the school board members were on board with this and were working on the process of severing that relationship. So the schools absolutely have problems and we absolutely need to work to fix those problems. And we absolutely should not be idealistic about those problems. But I don't think it ever makes sense to to excuse a problem in one area by saying there's a problem in another area. It's like saying it's fine that black kids have lower opportunities because low-income white kids have lower opportunities too. It's like, well, or maybe we could address both of those problems. I mean, just me, but maybe both of those kids matter. Maybe the kid who's in a public school where they are being bullied or they are being um, you know, mistreated by the teacher, maybe that child matters. And so does the one who's being homeschooled in a family where the parent is telling that child they're stupid, they're never going to learn. Maybe that child matters too. And I, I also want to share a story. I, I don't know if you're familiar with the story, Blake, is the story of Leela Alcorn. Um, oh, please. She, oh, she was a trans teenage girl. She attended public school. Her family was very religious, uh, evangelical Christian. At school, she became a med- member of the Gay-Straight Alliance, and that was the only place she was able to be who she was. And she found supportive teachers, friends. like She was... Really thriving. School was her respite. And then her parents pulled her out of school specifically because they wanted to remove her from that support system because they insisted that she was, in fact, a boy. They, you know, had her do all these meetings with her pastor. They spent something like a year trying to drill into her that she wasn't who she was and just being absolutely oppressive to her and her identity. And so, sometime about two years ago, she left home early in the morning walked to the local highway and stepped in front of a truck. She was 17. And so for me, what that story says is kids can be bullied and abused in any setting, public school or homeschool. We need to work to protect all of them. They all matter.
0: And, you know, a lot of my friends in this world are very big proponents of positive public school reform. They're not the ones saying tear down the public schools or judging, you know, other families who send their kids to public school. And I think they would say, and I say also, that if you have a, a public school that fits your kid in your local area, that's wonderful. But if you are prevented from homeschooling or you know pursuing some other meaningful alternative by onerous regulation, then... Uh, then that's that's not good because you can't wait around for the public schools to get better. Like that's a multi-decade or multi-century-long project, which doesn't have a great track record. And while there are some cases, uh, for example, of the, the what you just mentioned, with um, you know young people having a very important respite from home and having important community and connections in school. I see it go the other way all the time. And I know lots of LGBTQ kids who say like school was a horrible, judgmental, unsafe environment for me. And thank God that I'm now unschooled. Thank God that I can now, you know, kind of have more control over my social environment. And so I'm not trying to to say that your point is wrong, Rachel. I, I agree with it. I think it just goes both ways. And I would love for that the the freedom and flexibility to to go weave in and out of various educational systems to continue uh, in this country. I'd like to move on. to. Can I just ask you though, that you sort of, in that statement, you have this assumption that the, the only
1: other option is onerous regulation. And I, you know, I think I'm proposing more extreme regulation than Rachel. I still would not, uh, I would not say that it's, you know, onerous in my view to ask that parents show that they're capable of teaching. I mean, how would we feel about public schools that had no requirements that teachers know anything before they get to teach? So I don't think it's onerous to say they should have to show that they can teach and that they're committed to teaching a broad range of subjects. And there should be some check on whether they've have a history of serious abuse and neglect. I mean, to me, that's not onerous. Is it onerous to say, and their kids should, you know, take a course a year at the public school or have an extra curricular activity? To me, it's not. But, you know, I don't, I think onerous implies, okay, we're shutting it down. And that's not my proposal.
0: Well, this is the direction I wanted to go, Betsy, uh, Elizabeth. Okay. So, so okay. thank you. Um, Wait, I see... Some- I, oh, let, let me just uh, get this point out, <laughs> Rachel, and then I'll, I'll give you some more space. Um, so I see two broad buckets of regulation that you're proposing, Elizabeth, um, and, and also um, the CRHE is proposing, Rachel. One of these buckets is anti child abuse and neglect, and this has to do with making sure that a family who, who's homeschooling doesn't have a prior history in this regard, that they get seen by some sort of mandatory reporter on some basis, however infrequent, um, and that their basic health needs are addressed because that's their sort of fundamental rights as as people, as children. And then there are the educational regulations. And uh, the way that I'm interpreting a lot of the educational regulations that I see in your content, Elizabeth, and to a lesser extent um, in the content for the C-R-H-E, is essentially education equals teaching, and it means teaching a standard public school curriculum, and it also means uh, progress as defined by standard tests over a regular period of time matched to the public school curriculum. Mm-hmm. And I find that to be an incredibly narrow and, yes, onerous um, thing to prove because. I have a lot of experience and yes it's anecdotal experience but it's 15 years of it at this point and friends and families who have a lot more experience than me who see that it's just unreasonable to expect young people to progress through a, a curriculum at a normal pace and not just kids with like different styles of learning or learning disabilities but like normal Kids who are just like, "This is not <laughs> interesting or relevant to my life." And a lot of the kids who I work with are the more self-directed unschoolers who say, mm-hmm. um, "I'm going to get really deep into this one subject right now, and you know, parents encourage me, help me, give me the resources to pursue the thing that's meaningful and interesting to me right now. And then later on, math is a classic example. I will catch up and learn the things that I need to jump through the hoops necessary to get a high school diploma, to go to college, to get a job. I've seen this story over and over again. And so I'd like to just put out there that I feel much more sympathetic towards the proposed regulations that have to do with basic child welfare than the regulations that are related to uh, educational progress when education means being taught and being tested
1: yeah I, I i hear that, and I have some sympathy with the unschooling and the you know the risk that I remember reading with great enthusiasm as a as a first time parent long long ago John Holt's work and work on the you know the risk that s- schools could just stifle creativity and I've always made an effort to actually send my kids to private school where they had you know I think a lot of what people are trying to accomplish some people are trying to accomplish in homeschooling in terms of improvements over what the public schools are are offering and worried that the public schools are too much rote learning. On the other hand, I don't think it should be seen as problematic even from the kind of values that you're coming from there to say, you know, testing for minimal Progress in things like science, math, reading, writing. I think that's pretty basic stuff to be able to have some choices as you grow up about further education and also education that might lead to different kinds of employment. So I think it's okay and right for the state to set some minimums in terms of what children should learn. and I can't understand why a homeschooling parent, you know, would be denied providing the kind of creativity they want to provide in some relative unschooling environment that would still enable the child to accomplish some of those educational goals. And if you want, you know, my concern about the ultimate in the unschooling and absence of regulation, an example I give in my law review article is the father's who had his son's entire education from beginning through age 16 or 18, um, whenever the, the article on that came out, was video gaming. That is all the child learned. Well, I don't, you know... Now, if it's onerous to say, sorry, I want that child to learn math, reading, writing, and be in a position where if they want to, they could go to college, then call my proposal onerous. But I think that's okay and good to demand certain minimal accomplishments and certain, yeah, and I, I, I also think it should be through state standardized tests and not, Oh, let the parent design a curriculum and have their friends who are, you know, fellow homeschoolers review it and see if the child is learning something. No, I think it needs to be state standardized
0: tests. Rachel,
2: so uh, Blake, I am going to absolutely agree with you in part, and then I'm going to push back just a tiny bit. We in all of our. Recommendations that we make, we always, always argue that homeschooling needs to have, it needs, the law needs to allow for flexibility. You cannot require the students to be at their grade level in every grade and without, um, you know, creating limitations on parents' ability to innovate. So I would say I am not emphasizing that the parent needs to be teaching, I'm emphasizing that the child should be learning. And when a child is unschooled, they are learning. I actually spent a decent amount of time um, with unschoolers one summer in, um, you know, nothing compared to what you're talking about, but when I was writing my master's thesis, I uh, had a little girl at the time and and I went and I hung out with them that summer. Um, And, you know, there is something very beautiful to the idea of self-directed learning. And I was very attracted to it. And at one point I actually considered pursuing unschooling, um, I I didn't in part because while I was pursuing my PhD, I put my daughter in daycare and I found that she absolutely thrived in that environment. Um, So I never, you know, for me, that was what was working for us, for her to be in a formal schooling situation. So what I would say, though, is I spoke recently with a young woman who was homeschooled and she... Went um, to college, she wanted to become, she wanted to go into a medical profession and she couldn't hack the math. She tried to teach herself because she hadn't been taught math almost at all, being homeschooled. She tried to make up that difference and she just could not do it. So she eventually gave up and left what she wanted to be her profession to find something else. The fact that she had not had the math little bit over time that built on itself meant that she wasn't able to pursue. That education. Also, there are two studies looking at homeschool college homeschool graduates' call a major choice, and you'll be interesting one interested. One is actually at a, a more progressive school, it's Austin College in uh, Texas, and the other was at a more conservative school, uh, Grove City in in Pennsylvania. And both of them found that homeschool graduates were less likely to study STEM subjects than other students. They were less likely to major in STEM than others. And you know, you got to ask. why is that? And there's another point I want to make, which is the data we have, we've listed data from two different states. This is the only states we've been able to get data on this for so, so far, but we plan to do more homeschool graduates. According to this data are half as likely as other students to attend college as other graduates. Half as likely again, college is not the be all end all. Absolutely not. I, I, love the variety of paths that are becoming more well-known outside of college. But I've spoken with many, many, many individuals who were homeschooled who said that it was math that prevented them from going to college. They couldn't hack the math. So I think that parents, if I were to unschool, and you might argue that this would make me not an unschooler, I would go out of my way consciously to try to interest my child in subjects that are considered things they're supposed to learn, to find ways to make them interesting. Um, and including math and I would encourage my child to see math as something that helps get them to somewhere that to talk about how it is a key to other things. In fact, just this morning, I told my daughter, I really do want her to take there's an engineering class at the high school. She's only starting middle school now. But when she gets there, I really wanted her to take it. She was being resistant. She was like, I don't know. I was like, girl. Men, you know, girls are underrepresented in these fields. You have a big interest in environmentalism and in solving environmental problems. You might actually find that you really enjoy environmental engineering, and that this would be a tool that would open future things. And she was like, "Oh, okay, I think I will take that course." So for me, even when I was considering unschooling, and again, there are some unschooling parents would probably mean that say this and then I didn't understand it. I was already thinking to myself that I need would need to make sure. To open their eyes to different areas, and this includes subjects. For example, if a child is never encouraged to listen to or learn about music, if their family never exposes them to music, they may never know that they would have been a great trumpet player and that that would have been their passion. And I say that in part because one of the young schoolers I knew, I think was trombone, he ended up playing in bands around the country. His parents at some point exposed him to music. That's what I mean when I say cover the range of subjects. I mean, expose your child to these things. Hey, we're going to do a baking soda volcano. I think that there are ways that are completely compatible with unschooling for to document and show the learning the student is doing and to enhance their curiosity and their interest and um, drive their passions. This is. I, I also have seen cases where parents claim to be unschooling. And this, this uh, one specific case in, in particular. Her parents were religious, but they also didn't educate her and they told her the reason was that they were unschooling. And in her opinion, they were using that as an excuse. So for me, unschooling involves fostering children's learning and providing them with resources. um, I'll finish one more anecdote and then I'll let you take over because you do know more about this. One unschooler I knew um, back in Muncie, her kid was interested in geology. So she set up a field trip with a bona fide local geologist who took them all around the county and showed them all the rocks. For me, that's, you know, if you are unschooling and really pushing your child, you're not going to let their interest in geology just be that they're looking at rocks in the backyard. You're going to be finding resources to help foster that and further that interest. So I think that's one reason we support portfolios. We do. So I want to be clear that CRHE's policy recommendations do differ from the things Elizabeth would like to see on a number of points. And one is we absolutely support portfolios because children who are learning in all of these ways that are non-traditional can still show that that learning is taking place and put that together in in a portfolio. And so as a sort of a showcase of what they've been doing. Okay, go ahead, Blake.
0: (laughs) Thank you. So, I think we're mostly on the same page regarding unschooling. I definitely see a role for parents, and most of the families I've known do take such a role, uh, encouraging and exposing without coercing at the same time. Uh, Regarding the the study that that homeschoolers go into STEM less, I think that's probably true, but there's a causation correlation uh, thing that needs to be dealt with there. And I think that the kind of personalities that go into formal science that's what I thought I wanted to do when I was in high school are are probably more amenable to conventional school in the first place. And uh, in general, we've been talking uh, about this idea that if a homeschooling family p- produces a bunch of kids who don't go on to do much that's considered conventionally successful. For example, in the beginning, one of us brought up the, the family whose kids and all ended up just like living at home and uh, you know, working fast food jobs. Uh, something that I'd like to point out here is that this may have happened anyways. I, I know that we can't prove that. And I know it's not a very popular thing to say because we all sort of share this very powerful belief in the transformative power of formal education. But I think that it's, there's a plausible argument to be made that people who, for example, the, the, I believe it was the young woman who you said was homeschooled and then couldn't get the math. Together, in order to go on and do a medicine career, like that happens to a lot of public school graduates too. People just realize this happened to me. I thought I wanted to be a research scientist in physics and astronomy, and then I took linear algebra and quantum mechanics, and I was like, "Wait a second, I don't want to be a research scientist." And I went through all the traditional schooling, and so I think that yes, of course, if you don't have, if you're not forced to learn math for 12 years, there will be more. Perhaps much more catch up to do when you decide you want to go into nursing, for example, or become a doctor. Um, But I've seen so many kids, again, I, I know it's anecdotal, but I've seen so many who once that intrinsic motivation drive is there, which can be stoked even by something like intensive video gaming. Um, once that intrinsic motivation drive is there, that is the sort of primary skill that these young people rely upon in order to fill in the gaps, in order to move forward into uh, adult life. And sometimes if they were not going to be able to hack the math anyways, at least we save them from X number of years of, uh, of, being, of being kind of told that they're not you know, worthwhile human beings in a regular school system because they're not able to, to play by I think the, the games of, uh, the okay. of, the rules of the school game, effectively.
2: I did, but I don't think that that was the issue with this particular individual, because when you take math in school, it builds up. And so I think to say, oh, she probably wouldn't have been able to hack math anyway, when she never had the opportunity to learn math the way that it should be learned is a problem. Um, it, it, my husband is a PhD in math, and he specifically doesn't want my daughter to go too quickly because he thinks she'd get ahead of herself, and she needs the foundational basics. Um, I would also say the family I mentioned that's all working at McDonald's, I grew up with those kids. I lost contact with them when I went to college, but the first one definitely wanted to go to college. She wanted to go so bad she was clepping out of courses in high school. The next one was planning to get a degree and work with children in special needs. That was her passion. The third one loved computers, and he could take apart anything, and he wanted to go into computers. so I knew those kids; they had visions that weren 't just working mcdonald 's and to be clear i don 't think there 's a problem with working mcdonald 's. What is weird in their case is that they all ended up doing that exact same thing. I would think it was weird if every single child in the family became an engineer. I would be wondering what parental pressure coerced that for six children to all become an engineer, and who secretly wanted to be an artist and didn 't so it,
0: yeah, I, I take that point and, and thank you for adding that. Um, and I'll just just one more quick little thing. And then I'm going to bring it back to Elizabeth to wrap it up here. Um, I think with math as an example, there's a lot of kids who, um, you know, you're saying they don't learn math the way that it's supposed to be learned. I think even kids who are being taught math the way that we assume it's supposed to be taught are very much turned off by math. By that, by that style of teaching. And that's a casualty for potential future learning also. Um,
2: clear, the research is clear that homeschool students perform less well in math than their peers and are less likely to get STEM degrees. So I don't think that there's any way you can say that homeschoolers do math better than the way well, it's taught in public schools. So yeah, and and,
0: I, I, and I, I will look at that research. And again, the causation correlation thing is an open question for me. Um, okay, let's let's bring it to a close here. So Elizabeth, the homeschooling lobby In the United States is incredibly powerful, powerful, as you have recently experienced somewhat directly, and also, you know, through your studies. And so the question here is, if you could only choose a very minimal essential set of regulations um, to enact, you know, changes to be made legally for homeschooling in the United States, uh, you know, this is just the the most important stuff here, not your dream package, what would it be?
1: So first, if you'll forgive me,
0: I want to sort of
1: take on the idea that that lobby is so powerful that any kind of radical change is impossible. So I don't believe that. I've engaged in a couple of other battles where it was thought to be impossible, and um, we changed things. And I think here there's something. Yes, there's this powerful lobby. It's not at all representative. It's not representative of the homeschooling community. And what we have, I mean, law doesn't always make a difference, but sometimes it does. We have in the constitutions of 50 states a child's right to education written in as a very powerful right. We have in the laws of 50 states the child's right to protection against abuse and neglect written in as a really powerful right. What we have now, you know, is legislators who are cowed by this lobby. But I believe that if we brought more light, which I think we're in the process of doing, to this issue and more people are made aware of the complete absence of meaningful regulation in this area, that you know, we'll get more political forces on the side of reform because it's true that too many people, I think, have just looked at this and then throw up their hands and say, well, it's hopeless to propose anything significant. I don't think it is. I think that we have these incredibly powerful laws and constitutional provisions. They're just being ignored. And I think we have to build political support so that we, you know, give timid legislators some freedom to actually do what I believe they would do if they were operating as they should operate as representatives of the people. So to your question, I think minimal reforms for me would be a serious um, creation of a serious link between child protective services and homeschooling so that there's a check with CPS before somebody's allowed to homeschool. They're not allowed to homeschool if they have a history of serious abuse and neglect. If they have any history of abuse and neglect, they should be under a regular monitoring situation at home. Um, So that's at least part of minimal child abuse um, protection. In terms of, Education, I think at a minimum, there should be requirements that kids be tested on an annual basis by independent of the family authorities and assessed. And if the the progress is too minimal, then there be intervention that could include not allowing homeschooling. And thirdly, I think at a minimum, there has to be a requirement that children, and I know lots of homeschooling parents are exposing their children to all sorts of of activities and values and ideas outside of the family, but some aren't. I think there needs to be a requirement that if kids are homeschooled, they have to take a course or two at the public school or engage in extracurricular activities at
0: the public school. Thank you very much. Rachel, do you agree with Elizabeth? What would you change?
2: I would do the um, the screening to catch cases where there are risk factors regarding abuse um, as well as uh, truancy. I think um, the, a law like the one in Florida that I mentioned works well to help ensure that parents are actually planning to homeschool and not just trying to get out of uh, you know, truancy issues with lots of instability in the family already. Um, I would also say um, an annual assessment, but I want to emphasize that it would be something that I, I disagree with Elizabeth making it only a certified or a standardized test that I absolutely think there needs to be a portfolio option, especially for families that are doing things more eclectically. Um, And I, you know, if a state legislature was actually working on creating something like this, or a school district was working on making it standards for this evaluation, I would be interested in involving homeschooling parents in finding ways that we can show where education is taking place um, and identify cases where it's not. So it's not, and I should say learning, not education. But I might surprise you in saying that there's something else that's actually very important to me that really hasn't come up here at all, um, that I sort of would want almost second after the screening requirement. And that is, I would like to see the relationship between public school districts and homeschoolers improve by public schools being more willing to offer um, enrollment in individual classes at parent choice. The... um, you know, access to extracurriculars, access to learning materials, all these sorts of things. There actually are some very popular programs in Alaska that most homeschooling families there enroll in that allow the parents to homeschool autonomously. They still choose their curriculum, but they have access to public school resources and they actually get $2,000 of education expenses per child, um, reimbursement for various educational expenses, whether that's computers or books or classes or lessons or instruments. And I think that if you had the school districts drop some of the suspicion and come together and the parents drop some of the suspicion, because I think there's suspicion on both ends, and really come together and say, how can we all support the students? This isn't about, oh, no, are the schools losing a student, trying to get the kid back into the school. This isn't about the parents, you know, like, whatever their specific concerns are. Like, what can we look and specifically at the students and say, How can we improve that? And I really think that improving relations between the school districts and the parents is is a very practical way and that there are many parents, even something like this engineering course I mentioned at our local high school. I bet there's some unschoolers who might have a kid who's interested in taking an engineering course or doing Glee Club or or what have you. Um, And so that's something that I'm um, very passionate about as well.
0: I'm totally in agreement with you on that point, Rachel, and it's one that I bring up a lot myself. So I'm glad you threw that out there. Uh, this has been a wonderful conversation. I'm glad that we've gotten to really dig into the nuance and get beyond just the headlines and the reactions. And I really appreciate both of your time for being here. So, Elizabeth and Rachel, thanks so much. And
1: thanks for the opportunity. Yeah, thank you.